Today, our panel will assess the state of relations in the Gulf region after the Iran nuclear agreement and the impact this will have on Arab-Iranian relations and U.S.-GCC relations. Clearly, we are entering uncharted waters. As everyone knows, the Iran framework agreement was announced on April 2nd. The ensuing national debate and international reaction have been vigorous and intense. In an effort to bring clarity to this agreement, the National Council conducted a public affairs briefing uh, in this building on April 8th, with a panel of six specialists provided who provided their assessment on the issues and the implications of the Iran nuclear deal. For those interested, uh, the briefing was carried live by C-SPAN and is available on our website, along with our public policy briefing on Yemen held last month, which featured newly appointed Saudi uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs as Excellency Adel Jaber. It would be incorrect to say that the Iran nuclear agreement is a done deal. What has been signed so far is a preliminary agreement, a framework, from which many technical issues uh, are to be sorted out in the coming weeks and months ahead. In the meantime, the public debate has and will continue to be vigorous with ratification even more problematic. Just last Thursday, the Senate voted overwhelmingly to pass legislation that ensures their authority to review the final agreement. While many pressures will be on the president to secure to see this deal uh, with Iran through, it is going to be an uphill battle. But we should also ask ourselves, what about our friends in the region? What are the implications for future relations among those who will have to live with this agreement in the years to come? As we know, President Obama will be hosting GCC senior leaders and heads of state later this week. And while some leaders will not be attending due to pressing regional issues and events, this should not diminish the importance of this high-level summit. It is an effort uh, to understand what our regional partners and allies think and assure them of America's long-standing commitment <coughs> to their security. To be sure, the President has described this framework agreement as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see if we can take the nuclear uh, issue off the table and bring regional stability to the Middle East, unquote. But it also has the potential to rebalance and reshape relations across the Gulf region. So let us hear from our panel of specialists about the future of Arab-Iranian relations and U.S.-GCC relations in a post-nuclear uh, agreement world. Before we kick off, a few housekeeping details. Each of the speakers will have 10 to 12 minutes for their <coughs> remarks, and in the interest of time, I refer, refer you to their bios uh, in the announcement. Uh, this will allow for a full hour of question and discussion following their presentations. On your chairs, if you should find uh, three by five cards, uh, please write your questions on these cards and pass them uh, to our ushers who are on either side of the room. Uh, we'll bring them forward and we will do our best to respond uh, as fully as possible. We will wrap up promptly at, at 11 o'clock. To start, I'm pleased to introduce our first speaker, the founding president and CEO of the National Council on U.S. Air Relations, Dr. John McAnthony. Dr. Anthony is the only American to have attended as uh, an observer uh, at each GCC ministerial and heads of state summit since 1981. After Dr. Anthony, Dr. Christian Koch, director of the Gulf Research Center in Geneva and headquarters in uh, General speak. He will be followed by Dr. Tom Mateer, Executive Director of the Middle East Policy Council here in Washington. Then Dr. Sara uh, Bakshuri, President of SBP Energy International, will speak about 
our energy issues relating to this agreement. Uh, next, we will hear from Dali, Dr. Ali Adad uh, Mahazin, uh, President of the West Asia Council. And concluding, Dr. Imad Harb, Distinguished International Affairs Fellow of the National Council on U.S. Air Relations and former senior researcher at the Emirates Center for Strategic Studies in Abu Dhabi will wrap up the panel presentation. So, Dr. Anthony, if you would kindly come to the podium and begin. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, welcome uh, to the third uh, and uh, five weeks of these uh, congressional Capitol Hill uh, briefings and seminars on issues of, of timely uh, relevance pertaining to America's national interest and those of America's friends, America's allies, America's strategic and working uh, partners uh, in the region. Uh, the topic of today's uh, briefing is uh, with the uh, Arab-Iranian relations and U.S.-GCC relations uh, after a nuclear agreement. This uh, presupposes that there will be an agreement. I think the overwhelming majority believe that uh, so much momentum, so many assets, so much investment in this process uh, uh, will lead to an agreement of some kind or uh, postpone further uh, and extended negotiations until an agreement can be reached. So the atmosphere could hardly be more receptive. Uh, the moment could hardly be more propitious uh, given that there is a summit uh, between uh, the United States and the representatives of the six GCC countries, Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman, that is uh, bound to take place and scheduled to conclude within the next 72 hours. Now, the, the issue, I think, for both uh, the United States and the GCC countries, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran, and we'll let the Iranian uh, perspective speak for itself. We have ample representation here uh, to achieve that objective. Uh, is a two-fold phrase coming from the Reagan era in the United States having to do uh, with the then still vibrant Cold War pertaining to the United States and the Soviet Union. And that was namely the concepts of trust and verify. Now, trust is lacking. And with trust lacking, so too is verification. And the trust is lacking not just between the United States and Iran, at least in terms of requisite amounts, although we're working on both sides to diminish the mistrust, the distrust, and the suspicions. There's still uh, an ocean of uh, distrust uh, that is a reality. And if it's not among the negotiators, it certainly is among the American body public. And the American body public is influential with the American Congress, which, as Mr. Patterson said, has indicated it will certainly uh, have a say in the outcome of this uh, agreement, framework or no framework as such. So on the trust and the verification side, it's deep, and I'll just run through very quickly. We're talking about, uh, even from the beginning, uh, almost, of the beginning year of the Iranian Revolution, seizure of 52 American diplomats as hostage for 444 uh, days in Tehran, uh, seizure of Americans in Lebanon uh, by Hezbollah, which was created a year after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in June of 1982, um, as an Iranian uh, representative supportive uh, aligned uh, element uh, inside of Lebanon. 
Uh, fast forward to the Kobar Towers uh, attack in uh, 1986 in the eastern province of uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, include as well the uh, Operation Earnest Will, uh, whereby the United States put its flag on Kuwait's tankers in order for the uh, energy ships to uh, enter and exit uh, the Gulf that otherwise uh, were being threatened by Iranian attacks. Indeed, uh, Iran, by my arithmetic, attacked uh, the vessels of some nine uh, countries. Uh, three of uh, those vessels were even carrying Iranian uh, oil. Uh, so this is how that uh, situation got out of whack. And the United States had to uh, engage in UN Resolution 598 of July 15th, uh, 1987, calling for an immediate ceasefire. Iraq accepted it immediately. Iran took 13 months to accept it, with the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini saying he would have rather drank poison there, but that war was prolonged and life and limb was lost on all sides uh, to no one's uh, net benefit. In terms of the GCC countries, with the exception of Oman, and one cannot extrapolate from the good relations between Iran and Oman, uh, to the five other countries in the Gulf, whether northern end of the Gulf or southern end of the Gulf. Each and every one of the other five has a file, and it's not a thin one, it's a rather thick one, of incidents, of intrusions, of interferences in their uh, domestic affairs. Uh, throughout the 1980s, well into the 1990s, and even uh, if one wants to cast further feel as Dr. Hobb and some others will regarding Syria, and Lebanon and Yemen uh, to this uh, day and uh, moment. Uh, so the question of trust and verification will be um, a massive, deep, and pervasive on both the U.S. side and the uh, GCCC side. Now, what has to be uh, uh, entrusted? What has to be verified? Uh, there will be a more specificity of detail in the remarks of others, but the number of centrifuges that Iran will be allowed to retain and the rationale, the justification and the acceptability of all of the concerned parties that this is a legitimate number, it's a fair number, it's an acceptable number, it's a number that can be uh, verified. But this alone is a contentious issue with laced with implications uh, for war and peace uh, in the region. Secondly, has to do with inspections. Uh, at first, uh, Iranian representatives saying that they would agree to uh, all inspections anywhere, at any time, everywhere, only to have uh, representatives of the Iranian military to say, at military bases? No, indeed, no, sir, not at military bases. Well, that raises the question then, if one cannot inspect uh, Iran's military bases, uh, which is re required by Iran, saying that you can go anywhere and everywhere at any time, uh, where is the trust, where is the verification that uh, something illicit is not being stored, built, researched, hidden on one or more of those military bases? So that brings trust and verification uh, full square uh, as well. And then uh, the uses to which uh, the enriched uh, uranium is to be put, yes, for medical research and related research, uh, research that would benefit the people of Iran. Uh, but who determines uh, what's legitimate, what's illicit, what's in a gray area, and what's uh, prohibited and what's permitted? Uh, that, too, would turn heavily on notions of, of trust and uh, verification. 
So these are the main issues uh, uh, among the, the parties, the United States and the GCC countries on one hand, Iran on the other, uh, but also with implications to an, a nuclear agreement that's already been entered into, namely the 1-2-3 agreement of the United uh, Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates is officially, formally, uh, credibly on record as saying we will not engage in any enrichment. And the degree to which we use enriched uranium for air peaceful purposes once uh, we have uh, bought or borrowed, uh, rented uh, the, the rods to produce that enrichment, we will return those rods to the source from which we rented them or purchased them. So uh, what will be the reaction of the United Arab Emirates uh, to a framework or beyond agreement with Iran uh, that has provisions in it that the uh, population of the United Arab Emirates would legitimately say, me too, or we too. Uh, why do we uh, uh, not have the same rights, privileges, and permissions uh, for our agreement? We must too go back to uh, the negotiating table. And what about the dozens of other countries that uh, have notions of having nuclear agreements or nuclear power or enriched uranium of one kind or another with the implications? Uh, what will be their reactions and the implications and the ramifications of such a framework and beyond agreement when and if it is signed? And what will this summit uh, that is taking place now do, if anything, to allay, to assuage the legitimate uh, suspicions about uh, a possible uh, massive realignment of American uh, strategic priorities uh, in this uh, region of the Gulf with its eight countries, six of whom are aligned with the United States and vice versa, but Iraq is off the table for the most part, and Iran is a glaring uh, question mark. Uh, these are the issues. Those are my uh, ten minutes, not twelve. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, and, uh, uh, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I specifically, of course, want to thank National Council on U.S. Arab Relations for having invited me and uh, given me this platform. Um, I want to sort of focus on three themes uh, or three main issues. One is to look at, uh, give you a little bit of a perspective from the uh, GCC states when you're looking at the security situation uh, in the region. Uh, focus a little bit on where we are with uh, ties with Iran and the relationship, and then also what that means a little bit for US-GCC uh, relations. I think from the very beginning, you know, you have to put yourself in the position of seeing what's happening in, in the entire Middle East. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in Riyadh, for example, you're sitting in Abu Dhabi, uh, and you see that uh, basically every single major geostrategic uh, threat uh, that you've always feared is happening, almost. I mean, on, on, on all fronts. Um, we see popular street revolt uh, happening as part of the Arab Spring. Uh, this motion is asking for greater democratic pluralism. We see uh, the rise of militias and non-state actors, whether it's in Iraq, in Syria, in, in Yemen. Uh, we see militants, Salafis, Takfiri movements uh, coming about. Uh, we've already had an attack now on the Saudi-Iraq border. 
uh, of course, here for the for the Gulf states, still the experience, especially in Saudi Arabia in 2003 and 2004, when we had a number of attacks happening inside uh, the kingdom, is still very much fresh uh, on your mind. Uh, we see political Islam as a whole take on uh, a higher level of importance, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, once again, we see this fragmentation of states uh, happening uh, throughout the region, and you know the Gulf states are still very much holding on to this idea of the nation state as a coherent unit, as a stable unit of international relations. Now we see all the states, uh, they are falling apart. Uh, and then on top of that, you really you see Iran trying to take advantage a little bit of this situation, of, of, of trying to contribute to this further decay of, of, of the state system in the region by supporting various militias and not really contributing to uh, bringing back uh, degrees of stability. Uh, and some of these issues have really uh, hit quite close to home. I mean, we see the, uh, the protests in Bahrain, and we see the continuing situation there, which has not uh, been resolved satisfactorily at all. And of course, more recently, we see the situation in Yemen, where again, there was uh, simply this fear. And I, I, mean, I think you have to understand a little bit how the GCC states see what is happening in a neighboring country like Bahrain or in Yemen. You know, it's not that there's a feeling here that Iran is suddenly going to establish uh, you know, themselves as the power in these countries, uh, but it's simply the fear that if the situation deteriorates further, uh, and if we see uh, protests <laughs> continuing to spread throughout all of Bahrain, or if we see uh, somebody like the Houthis expand their control over most of Yemen, uh, there is just this fear that then Yemen, uh, that Iran will sort of be tempted. They're not going to be able to resist the chance then to actually really begin more overt uh, interference in these countries. Uh, and therefore, these things need to, there needs to be a stop uh, uh, put to that. Uh, now, when you look at all the security threats that have developed, how the, the whole situation has deteriorated overall, it's of course compounded a little bit by you know, deep disappointment about American policy in the region. And I think this goes, you know, the real frustration that I feel uh, from Gulf leaders is the fact that they just don't feel they're being listened to uh, correctly. Um, I still remember, you know, in the debate in end of 2002, beginning of 2003, uh, you know, when there was this, uh, is the U.S. going to start and launch its, its invasion of, of Iraq? Uh, the, the Gulf leaders were, uh, you know, really trying, especially Saudi Arabia, was really trying to prevent the U.S. from take, undertaking this invasion, saying, you know, you are opening in Pandora's box if you're going in that direction. Uh, and, and then when it became clear that those messages were not being listened to, that the U.S. was going to go ahead with its invasion, again, the regional leaders tried to implore on Washington, you know, take care of the post-conflict uh, environment. Uh, you know, we need to keep structures in place in, in, in Iraq. We can't just allow this to deteriorate. And what again, what did the, uh, what did the US, U.S. policy was uh, disbanding the uh, Iraqi security services. And, and you know, the result was is exactly what uh, the Gulf leaders sort of feared. Uh, and, and then, you know, this disappointment uh, continued uh, with the coming in of the Obama administration. Because here you finally had a feeling in 2007, uh, beginning of uh, 2008, that security situation in Iraq was starting to stabilize. We had the awakening movement. We had, you know, there were some positive signs out there. 
Uh, and then we see Obama, uh, the Obama administration coming in and uh, deciding that we need to withdraw from Iraq as quickly as possible. And before giving this process a chance uh, to solidify, to bring some sort of stability back to Iraq, uh, there was simply this notion we need to get our troops out as quickly as possible out of, out of there. And uh, what's the result of that was once again, uh, we see in Iraq uh, the Maliki government coming into place withdrawing all support for the Sunni tribes uh, in Iraq, uh, and the situation again deteriorates completely uh, to the point where, you know, last year again we had the highest number of, of civilian casualties in Iraq that we had since 2007. So, you know, and then if you combine that sort of with uh, uh, the situation in Syria, where there's simply a feeling that the, the U.S. is not taking this issue serious at all, is trying to avoid it, uh, not even uh, sticking to its own self-imposed red lines. Um, and uh, again, this, this, this now this notion of having to come to an, uh, an agreement with Iran over the nuclear deal when absolutely there's no confidence about uh, relations between Iran and the GCC, I think this uh, compounds the problem uh, overall. Um, and what has been the result out of this is uh, you know, the GCC state really feel they've been pushed in a corner. Uh, they feel that they really have no other choice. They need to act, and they need to act also on their own. Uh, uh, this is not necessarily in, in, in their DNA. Uh, they tended to always be very cautious, uh, preferring to, to act uh, at times behind the scenes, uh, and not necessarily having to take the lead role. Uh, but now I think there's a feeling that uh, you really have no choice. Uh, we cannot rely on necessarily the U.S. Uh, to keep order uh, in our kind of way that we would like to see, and, and therefore there needs to be a move. And I think this is also combined uh, a little bit with, you know, a generational changes taking place in the Gulf. Uh, and we already have, you see, generational leadership taking place in in Qatar, for example. We now have uh, uh, Sheikh Tamim uh, in the UAE. Uh, we have leadership with Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, now, most recently in Saudi Arabia, uh, we have the leadership changes, uh, with, uh, the elevation of uh, Mohammed bin Nayef as, as crown prince. And I think this, this combination of a new leadership, um, a certain degree, a sense of confidence about so far, you know, their societies have still grown economically, have prospered in the region, everything else has been, uh, uh, you know, falling apart. Uh, but you feel you still have strong legitimacy. And so there's a sense of confidence uh, also about readiness to act. Uh, you know, why should one hold back? Uh, and you know, when push comes to shove, I think the, the Gulf states have shown that they're, they're ready to act. And we saw this in, in, uh, in 1990 when uh, Kuwait was uh, uh, invaded, that immediately there, there, was, there was movement and asking the United States to come in. Uh, and I think we see it again, this action on, on the Yemen issue where there was a determination made that this is a threat, we need to act, uh, and we will do so. So where does this lead at the moment in terms of relations with Iran? I think definitely here we can say that relations, of course, are, are not very good. And I, I think the bottom line, once again, is, is, is a feeling that uh, GCC interests um, are not being taken seriously by people in Tehran. Uh, I think there's still uh, a sort of conviction that uh, the uh, Iranian system, the Iranian leadership, continues to see the monarchy system in the, in the region as illegitimate. 
that they would still uh, see this as being basically just propped up by uh, U.S. support, and therefore uh, uh, there's no trust in terms of Iranian <coughs> policy uh, as, as being able to talk to one another at, at, at the same level. Uh, you know, I think there's a feeling always in the region that uh, somehow the Iranians are talking down uh, on, on, on the Gulf leaderships and not seeing them as being uh, equals. Uh, you know, one, one example here is always this dispute about the uh, three islands of the UAE, uh, where you know, the, when, when this issue can be brought up, uh, the Iranians always refer to, well, it's, it's simply a misunderstanding between the two sides. And, I think the Gulf states feel, no, 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 we, we, we're pretty sure of what the dispute is here. You can't tell us that we don't understand this, you know. Uh, but I think this all feeds into this mistrust uh, uh, that exists. And of course, um, I mean, the Gulf states feel like, well, we've already announced that we accept uh, a robust and, and, and good nuclear deal. Uh, I mean, they came out with relatively positive statements on that. Um, they have continuously over the years have always said that Iran has legitimate security interests in the region um, and we have numerous statesmen, uh, uh, statements there um, uh, and again what's the reaction? Well, we see Iraq interfering in, in, in Iraq uh, we see Iran uh, through Hezbollah supporting the killing machine of Assad in Syria uh, and of course we now see uh, some policy in Yemen as well as trying to uh, provide some support to the Houthis which overall are not being seen as very positive. Uh, so I think at the moment, uh, you know, I don't think the outlook is very good in terms of uh, relations with Iran because from a GCC perspective, definitely uh, the ball is in Tehran's court to make a move towards uh, the GCC. And if they don't, then uh, I think we're going to see this continued activism by Gulf states, uh, even pursuing uh, sort of interventions here and there uh, especially also in, not only in Yemen but also in Syria and so uh, we, we are in for quite a contentious period and I don't see Iran necessarily backing off at the moment from their policy uh, so this concern about asymmetrical threats from Iran continued meddling in, 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 in Arab affairs uh, is definitely there and will be the, the, the guideline for how relations in the future will go um, I think you've already given me the notice so I'll keep my remarks on the uh, USGCC <laughs> for the question and answer period. Thank, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, and I also thank the National Council for hosting this event, and I'm glad to be here with some new colleagues, and, and uh, one in particular old colleague from many years ago. Um, uh, I, I had, I suppose, 20 meetings in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain in March, and another 20 in Kuwait and Oman just this last week or so. So I, I think uh, I would like to speak more or less extemporaneously about this. Uh, and pick up on a few things that, that John and Christian said. Um, there is there is deep, deep distrust in these uh, Gulf Arab states about Iran's intentions. And so 
on the question of inspections and the duration of any nuclear agreement. Um, you know, if, if, if the duration is not uh, longer than what has been specified already and if the inspections are not more uh, extensive, then I think the GCC states uh, will not be happy with an agreement that comes out at the end of June or even if it's extended. And uh, I would expect them over a period of time to to develop some comparable capabilities. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the Saudis, although they, you know, they're, it is said that they don't have the technical and scientific capability to, to develop a nuclear energy program uh, quickly, they have funds and they have friends and they have uh, GCC partners. And I, I believe they'll move in that direction rather than allow Iran to have some rights that are recognized that, that they can't match and duplicate. And that will be a, a, a thorny issue for U.S. Uh, GCC relations. But nevertheless, that's, that's what I expect to see. Um, of course, there's a long history that John spoke about uh, that feeds this deep distrust in these states. So um, uh, much of it is ongoing, as Christian mentioned. Um, they see Iran basically surrounding uh, them, uh, particularly now that Iran has been supporting the Houthis in Yemen. And by the way, the, the Saudis have been saying that the uh, Iran has been supporting the Houthis since at least 2009. And uh, we know that they have provided oil and um, there have been intercepted arms shipments. And uh, uh, so, and, and there are Iranian Revolutionary Guards there. So, so this is not a figment of the Saudi imagination. And they, they do seem to think that they are surrounded. Um, it's more than, now when you come to, to their relationship with the United States, Christian said they're disappointed. Uh, I would say they're more than disappointed. I'd say they're suspicious of the uh, United States. You, you hear from reasonable people that perhaps it's actually the intention of the United States to recognize some enhanced Iranian role in the Arab world. And um, uh, not only might we acquiesce in, in this enhanced role, but that we might even think that there's something legitimate or or valid in it. So uh, instead of seeing Iran's presence in the Arab world as kind of the unintended consequence of American mistakes, which is the way I see it, they think that maybe there's something deliberate going on here uh, where, we, where we want to favor Shia uh, forces and regimes over Sunnis. And so uh, they're evaluating our behavior pretty carefully, and they're not satisfied with it. Certainly, as Christian said, the, the, the leaders, such as the king of Saudi Arabia, explicitly and directly and personally and face-to-face asked Bush not to invade Iraq. You know, people say personal relationships between American presidents and these leaders are very important, and they are. And, but if you ask, if you give advice to a personal friend who you like, uh, as, as he did like Bush much more so than he deceased now. He, 
like Bush more than Obama. Even so, if you have a personal friendship and your friend doesn't take your advice, it, it really uh, can, you know, it, that's what really has a consequence for you. Not, not that you have a personal friendship, that the friend has done something that has, that has a negative consequence for your security. And it certainly did. There are dozens of Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. And they, they are viewed as a threat to these countries. Kuwait is next door, and it views them as a threat. It's very happy it has 10,000 American troops. <coughs> Saudi Arabia views it as a threat. It has, it has 30,000 of its own troops on its border. So they're a little bit alarmed about us. And then, uh, of course, there's the fact that we, we did not uh, intervene in Syria and that things have, things have become desperate there with Four million refugees in neighboring countries, eight million internally displaced people, in country, millions more that need food, water, and, and health care. And, uh, and we, we have come very, very, very late to the game. Where now, yes, we are leading some, some airstrikes there, uh, as we are in Iraq. And uh, finally, the Defense Department is finally getting around to training a moderate opposition force that it really was supposed to start training months ago. But uh, we're late, and, and we may be too late. So, uh, and I've even heard complaints about the quality of the intelligence and the logistical support that we're providing to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. And I've heard that the UAE is actually providing better support than the United States is. So, this, and then of course, as I said at our conference about a month ago, they're just appalled that. Uh, we didn't take up the Crown Prince of Delta Peace Plan for the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And that uh, this has festered for so long and it fosters extremism in the region. So I, I suppose that uh, what we're hearing now about people who are and are not coming to this Camp David summit over the next few days says something about the way they feel about the United States. I'm not saying relationships are breaking down. Uh, we have extensive intelligence cooperation with these states. We have extensive counterterrorism cooperation with these states. Uh, we have extensive trade with these states. They uh, rely upon our military equipment, our training, and prepositioning of supplies and troops. Uh, they're looking for more of that, evidently, reportedly. You know, Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE asked. Um, Obama several weeks ago for written security back. Um, um, others would like the same thing, um, but um, but they're very disappointed in our political judgment and and uh, because of the kinds of mistakes I just outlined: the Arab Israeli mistakes, Iraq, Syria, and uh, suspicious about what might be behind the mistakes. And so, as Christian said, they're taking the lead now and doing things that uh, they evidently don't inform us about. Evidently, the UAE didn't inform us when they did airstrikes in Libya earlier this year. Uh, Saudi Arabia didn't inform us until about an hour before they launched airstrikes in Yemen. They're taking matters into their own hands because they're, they're not sure we, we will. And here's the thing about Camp David, I think, that, that bears some, some thought. Um, 
when they're looking for security assurances from the United States, when they're invited to Camp David to be given security assurances by the United States over what this, what this nuclear deal is going to mean, and they find out that the administration is essentially scrambling to decide what it can and cannot offer in the days before they're supposed to come here. Uh, that might have something to do with why they have downgraded their delegation, because they don't. They may not be satisfied with what they know they're about to be offered at Camp David. Um, some of the things. Is that my time? Some of the things they might like would be quite difficult. You know, Congress would have to approve a treaty that uh, you know, gave them the uh, same kind of assurances that Japan has or that Turkey has, but, and I doubt that they would. But um, what I've heard is that the president is going to make a statement of assurance that won't necessarily be binding on his successor, and that won't have much much validity in their eyes because he made statements about Syria that he didn't carry through on. Uh, so I think you'll see GCC states, in light of these nuclear agreements and in light of their disappointment and even suspicion of the U.S., I think you'll see them pull closer together and cooperate as they are. Um, there seems to have been some kind of thaw between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, whereby they are willing to coordinate their activities in Syria more closely, and that even is resulting in a little more success for the people they're supporting on the ground, as you know, some of the victories in Idlib, which may be kind of significant, because if it lets uh, opposition move toward the Mediterranean coast, toward the Shia stronghold in Latvia, then Damascus will, will really lose some of its uh, some of its power, and so will Iran. Um, so you see a little more cooperation there um, between those two countries that, that had pretty frosty relations until recently. And you have uh, support for the Saudi actions in Yemen, where, for example, the Kuwaiti Air Force is, is helping, although I'm not sure it's helping over the skies of Yemen, but it is helping with its F-18s. And uh, they're going to, I think, lead uh, because they can't, they don't believe they can rely on us. And uh, in some ways, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but I, I do want to say, as final word, I want to say this. At the conference that we did recently, the Middle East Policy Council, we were discussing this, and I said, um, what more can we do to, to drain the swamp? In other words, to to um, improve the situation in the region so that uh, there wasn't so much extremism and extremists didn't have such ease recruiting uh, people to their, to their cause. And one of the panelists said, it's not our swamp. And um, yeah, it's not our neighborhood. They live there. They have some responsibility for the way the region has gone. But we have dropped some bombs in the swamp, and some crocodiles have come out. And we have some responsibility for helping rectify this thing. Not that I want to get dragged into another Vietnam, 
but we, we do need to consider the uh, long history of our friendship with them and what we owe them given the mistakes we made to them. And actually, that wasn't my last comment. Here's my last comment. <laughs> I read a, a comment by a, a Washington analyst who summed this thing up by saying, we're coming to the realization that the Gulf Arab states are our friends, but not our allies. And we're coming to the realization that Iran is not our friend, but it is our ally. And I would really like to have a conversation with him, because this is something I don't understand. I don't understand, after 30 years of our issues with Iran, and where we stand in Syria and Yemen and Iraq, how we can think of Iran as an ally and not think of the GCC states as allies. Thank you. Most of them, uh, most of them mentioned the issue of trust uh, between the different sides, Iran and GCC, GCC and the U.S. and U.S. and Iran. Uh, I'm here and I've been asked to speak about Iran, GCC, energy cooperation possibilities, of course, and challenges more than opportunities. But we often are asked about the future of the market. The Indian energy industry, everybody wants to forecast the market, see where the fighting the OPEC is going on, where the Iranian production is going on, if there is a deal. And what will be the geopolitical uh, environment in the Middle East and how things are going to solve. Something that, on the issue of trust, something that I personally observe and I think is very important is it's just not the trust issue between Iran and GCC, which it has historically never been a trust. The issue of Sunni Shias, the inconsistency in the policies and um, statements of two sides with each other. There have been some efforts from some of the Iranian governments, like um, during uh, uh, presidency of Mr. Rafsanjani or the current president, Mr. Rouhani, and his administration, that they have announced that they want to rebuild and to create a better relation with their Arab neighbors. However, between the actions and different statements of different power centers in Iran, even at the same time there has been inconsistency. So of course, we can expect from the Arab side not to be, uh, not to trust the other side completely. But something very important happened is the lack of trust and mistrust that is happening and increasing from GCC side to US as a reliable source to securing the neighborhood and uh, their security. And that's very important because for years and decades, U.S. was a source of securing Persian Gulf and the oil supplies from Persian Gulf and the security of the GCC countries. But when the GCC people, I mean, the Arab leaders are losing their trust and they are thinking it's used as a less of a reliable source to securing their security, then what will happen is what is happening currently that they are deciding, they're that okay, now is the time for us to take care of our own security, or 
to counting on other allies or finding other allies or other um, sources that could secure or help us securing ourselves. This is something that is new and it could unstable the situation, um, at least the oil situation, the geopolitics of the, uh, uh, the region. This is very important and this is what is happening. And in my discussions with many of the leaders, many of the people on the GCC side, something that is important is the psychology of the Arab leaders. And just historically, and the type of life that, I mean, the tribal life that Arabs had historically, the issue of trust is very different from the trust, the international interest, reliability is totally different from what we are preserving and what we are preserving in the United States. In the United States, you can trust Iranian, or you can deal with Iranian not having completely trusting them, but putting some certain reward punishment system or inspecting uh, and uh, in order to contain their behavior and to make sure that you are on, on the same track. But for Arab leaders, that's not the case. So for Arab leader, psychologically, a friend is a friend forever. It's not a friend that one day could change its friendship or alliance because its national interest is changed or the national interest is now um, preserving by having another ally or changing its alliance to friendship or friendship to alliance. So this is very important to understand that like how uh, an Arab leader psychologically would think and what would be a reliable source and trustable source for Arab leaders. Back to the issue of energy. Uh, Iran and GCC uh, have been always a turbulent political relations historically, but they always kept a minimum trade relation. Even between Iran and Saudi Arabia, there has been always a minimum of uh, trade relation. UAE, it has been uh, mentioned, uh, has always had territorial problems with Iran in the last uh, more than three decades, but they have, uh, UAE is the Iran's largest trade uh, partner among GCC members. And the trade uh, amount between the trade uh, relation between Iran and uh, GCC increased be particularly between 2000 to 2008. Uh, the imports from GCC of, uh, from Iran increased from around $1 billion to per year to $13 billion. And the exports increased from $6 million to roughly $2 billion. However, of course, the sanctions of 2012-2013 have reduced this uh, trade relation and economic trans transaction between neighbors uh, furthermore, uh, even to a certain extent by one-third. On energy, there are lots of opportunities that Iran and GCC could look at. And of course, when there is a, we could think if there is an issue of money, and whatever add money and secure your economy and secure your demand could be a possible way of looking into a relationship. And Iran's its Arab neighbors to begin with, they are sharing more than tens of uh, share oil fields and gas. Iran with Qatar, with Iraq, with Saudi Arabia, uh, with Kuwait, they all have share, field, uh, share oil and gas fields, which they could start. Iran has already some agreements with Qatar. They're just, uh, they never, in more than an agreement, they never really jointly worked on these fields, but they could uh, possibly start uh, looking at this uh, opportunity. The second one is investment. Of course, Iran is looking for its uh, current five-year plan to uh, attract 
165 billion dollars of investment, which most of it never happened because of sanctions. They need 50 billion dollars of investment in their upstream, and of course, some of the investment could come uh, potentially from some of its Arab and neighbor or GCC countries. The other part that, of course, uh, makes sense and is uh, an, an immediate need uh, with the uh, the gas export. Gas export from Iran to countries like UAE, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, particularly, would be an importance. Uh, UAE has a bad uh, experience with Iran. Uh, of course, when we are in UAE, there are different, slight differences between uh, Dubai, how Dubai is uh, looking in, into Iran, how Abu Dhabi is looking at Iran. But still, the option of uh, gas export to UAE could be a good option. Kuwait, of course, and. Uh, exporting Iranian gas to Oman and then exporting it from there. Uh, Oman's uh, LNG facility could be the other option. To Saudi Arabia would be really good, uh, make an economy sense, of course, because Saudi Arabia, uh, its consumption is increasing a lot, particularly in its electricity section and industry. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a huge uh, petrochemical industry, and it's number one in the region um, using liquid fuel as a feedstock for petrochemical uh, factory. If we look at uh, U.S. shale, oil and shale gas, which are promoting, Saudi Arabia price-wise could compete with U.S. petrochemical production in the market if it could have a, a natural gas as a feedstock instead of the fuel, uh, liquid fuel. Uh, Iranian gas could be the best option, could be the price-wise, the cheapest way uh, of having access to natural gas. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have access to enough of water to, with the current technology, to develop its shale gas resources. So, in exporting gas from Iran to Saudi Arabia could help this country's petrochemical industry and could help the, uh, the kingdom to compete price-wise with U.S. petrochemical uh, products in the same market. The other, uh, the other uh, industry would be the electricity. Uh, of course, they could instead of using uh, fuel. Uh, liquid fuel in their electricity, power generation, they could use Iranian natural gas. The other area of cooperation would be, of course, OPEC. Iran uh, is not uh, Iranian crude oil that is uh, uh, going to expand hugely. There are some experts that are going to that extent and predicting that it's going to be an Iran-Saudi uh, alliance in OPEC against Iraqi crude oil production, because that's Iraqi crude oil production that we're expecting to ramp up hugely. However, I personally don't think that's going to happen because Iran never had a poli policy of uh, cutting uh, Iraqi in income. And Iraq at the current moment is 90% dependent on its oil income. And uh, of course, Iranian both and Saudis are not going to uh, do anything that Iraqi income would be more uh, reliant uh, re uh, rely on uh, international sources. So these are the opportunities, of course, but what are the challenges? Uh, I would divide the challenges into technical challenges and political challenges. And the technical challenges is if the gas export of Iran is a good option, where is the export capacity? At the current moment, Iran doesn't have any natural gas export capacity. Iran has the second hugest natural gas reserves in the world, but the share of its market in the, in the global market is less than 1%. And the reason for that is the high consumption, domestic consumption, and also sanctions. They never really, most of Iranian natural gas uh, fields are untapped. But if the sanctions, which were the barrier, are removed due to the 
due to any possible upcoming negotiations, Iran could, of course, increase its natural gas uh, production. And it's expected, if the, regardless of the sanctions, if the sanctions even don't remove Iran's natural gas uh, production from the fields that have been already invested, it's going to increase to 1 billion uh, cubic meter. And its condensate is going to increase to 1 million uh, barrels per day in the next three years. So Iran is going to have a certain amount of its export capacity is going to increase. However, Iran's export policy of natural gas is very unclear. There have been many different debates if they should use it inside, exporting it as electricity or as natural gas. So there are many technical and uh, energy policy issues. And on the political side, of course, Saudi Arabia, buying gas from Iran is like a 20 years of marriage. You cannot uh, think of marrying with someone without having at least a basic chemistry. So unless there is any minimum trust between the two countries, the natural gas export from Iran to Saudi or Kuwait or uh, UAE uh, is not going to happen because it's a longer commitment, long-term commitment, and uh, if you want to rely on a source for your supply and your economy, you need to be sure that's a reliable uh, resource. So that's, uh, that's something that... Uh, the Iran and GCC and its partner that are uh, is looking for as a possible uh, market, they should work on it and as uh, finish it. I will, uh, that, I will, I'm going to stop here. I know that my time is finished and I'm looking forward to the question. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking uh, John Dupantini and Mancino and the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for uh, putting this event together. Uh, it's a pretty bleak picture that has been painted today uh, in terms of the lack of trust between Iran and its Arab neighbors uh, in the Persian Arabian Gulf region. And the question one has to ask oneself is, so where is this all going? Uh, there was a report out by the Atlantic Council by Matthew Burroughs called Middle East 2020. And it really portrays a very harrowing picture of where this region is going to be in five years' time in the year 2020 if current trends and current patterns continue. We have a region right now with Millions and millions of people driven from their homes, uh, something around 50,000 professional terrorists roaming that region, whether it's in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, supported by various countries, uh, some of them supported by Arabs, some of them supported by Iranians, uh, some calling them terrorists, some calling them freedom fighters. But large sections of that region are, for the first time in living memory, ungovernable. And the question is, if current patterns continue for the next five years, in the year 2020, will it be possible for any of these countries, including the United States, to exert a measure of control over that region? What if instead of 50,000 professional terrorists, you have 100,000 professional terrorists? What if you have, among these people, European passport holders, as we see now, but we have more of them? What happens then? I remember a few years ago, uh, President Obama was asked about the misery and the devastation that the people in that region have to deal with right now, and he said, well, I look at the world and I see in the Congo, 
millions of people have been killed in that country's civil war, various civil wars since the late 90s. Uh, I think five million people is the figure. And when you look at the devastation of, say, Iraq and Syria and that region, maybe it's not as bad, but the problem is that when you have people who are willing to die in the name of God, in the name of religion, these kinds of problems aren't self-contained you know, in, in, in the way that a lot of the problems, horrifying as they are, in Africa are self-contained. And that's the difference between West Asia, Middle East, and much of the rest of the world, is that people are, are dying and killing in that region in the name of God, whether it is sectarian violence, whether it's Muslim versus non-Muslim. And so the question for all the members of this triangle, the US, the GCC, and Iran, is what can be done about this? None of these parties can be wished away. And the question then becomes, how can we address the legitimate security concerns of both the Arab and the Persian side of this Gulf, pun intended, and to, to look at that, one has to go back to the year 2003. Uh, and to look at the kind of security perception that Iran has, especially has had since 2003, one has to realize that right around the time the invasion of Iraq was beginning in the late March of 2003, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Iran sent a three-page fax to the State Department. This is uh, the last week of March of 2003. And in this three-page fax, which is reproduced in the book that uh, Barbara Slavin wrote, in this three-page fax, Iran offered to negotiate with the United States on all issues that were driving them apart, including Iran's support for militant organizations, including Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, including Iran's uh, lack of a relationship and lack of recognition of Israel, uh, weapons of mass destruction. You look at that fax and you see, boy, during Khatami, not only were Iran-GCC relations improving tremendously, you also had a scenario where, with uh, remarks uh, having made by Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in the year 2000, acknowledging some of the difficult history between the two countries, you thought things were headed in the right direction. And Khatami, of course, had a lot of international uh, legitimacy uh, among Arabs and among Americans. That fax was never replied to. And so in Iran, the perception became, well, after Iraq, we're next. That if we are making this kind of an offer, and we're not even getting a reply to this fax, this means that after they're done with Iraq, changing the regime there, we're going to be next. So how can we deal with this? And that's how Iranian foreign policy became militarized more than ever before, even more than the time of the Iran-Iraq war, because during that time, there was no perception that the Americas were coming. Relations with the US weren't good, but there was no fear during the 80s, even during the peak of the Iran-Iraq war, that the Americans are going to be invading. That became the dominant, although unmentioned, undeclared perception in Iran that unless we fight them outside of Iran, we're going to have to fight them inside of Iran. And that began really the process of the militarization of Iranian foreign policy in the form of backing militias across the region, especially in Iraq. 
And that's how the Revolutionary Guard really stepped up its activities in Iraq to be able to bog down the Americans there instead of inside Iran to basically make sure that the Americans understand that wars aren't things that you can win easily in, in that part of the world. That's how the process of militarization began. That's what led to the presidency of President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who really came to office, to use a godfather analogy, as a wartime conciliary, the system expecting that there was going to be a war. But that war with the US, thankfully, never came. But that mentality could no longer be pulled out of the, uh, the, the, the national psyche and the, uh, and, and the Iranian government psyche. And so you had, throughout the presidency of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, greater and greater militarization of Iranian foreign policy. And you see, for example, and you had the Guts Force, the kind of foreign operations branch of the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, becoming more active, not only in Iraq, but across that region. And the war never came. The war with America never came. But then Iran was constantly preparing for that war during those eight years. You know, uh, the, the oil revenues were flowing in to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, there was this sense of boy, the, the buoyancy of the spirits that, that came with that, with, with those resources. The war never came, but then the sanctions came. And, uh, and so you have now, for example, a situation where last December, uh, with the coordination of a lot of Iranian institutions, you had the Arba'in pilgrimage in Iraq hosting 15 million people. This is last December. This was the largest gathering of people in human history. Never in history had so many millions of people gathered in one place. And the security for this was provided, not all of it, but much of it, again, by the Iranian military. And this is a celebration that's happening in Najaf and Karbala. They call it Bain uh, al-Haramain, between these two holy cities in Shia Islam. And, uh, and, and if I were sitting in any of these Arab countries, looking at 15 million people, you know, chanting Yah Hussein, I would find that very troubling. Uh, it, is, it is a troubling development, because who is behind this? who is organizing these millions of people to, to, to make these kinds of pilgrimages. And so we are where we are right now. Uh, and uh, uh, the region is in a very, very bad shape. And I believe the only thing that threatens everyone, people in that region and the international community, more than the devastation itself, the only thing that threatens us more than the devastation itself is a sense of learned helplessness that we can't do anything about it that we just have to let these wars burn themselves out and, you know, until enough people are killed so that there's just no more uh, willingness or ability to fight. And that's when we don't have that luxury. And especially the United States, that this notion that the US just can't do anything, that America's leadership is a thing of the past, these are the real issues that threaten international stability. And they have to be addressed today among all of these countries. There are certain things that all of us have in common, whether we're Americans, Iranians, Arabs, what have you. And the most significant of these is bringing a measure of governability back to this region. And in that light, 
If I were looking at it from the vantage point of GCC countries, I would welcome an opening between America and Iran, because Iran's threat perception has, for the past 37 years, revolved around enmity towards the United States. Because you know Iran hasn't thought that, for example, Qatar or the UAE is going to be invading Iran. But it has thought, especially uh, during the time of the Iraq War, um, that it was going to be invaded by the US. And the best way of getting it to pull back from its pan-Shia, Shia chauvinist ideology is to uh, address its, own, its security concerns vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with the United States. It's not going to be an alliance, but it can have the semblance of a normal relationship with dialogue, with an American, official American presence in Iran. If I were a GCC member, I would welcome that, because Iran would have much less of a region, reason, rather, in a scenario like that, to be aggressive, to foment uh, Shia militancy across that region. Because it's used that not so much as a matter of ideology, but it's used it as a matter of strategic depth. If you come after me here, I'm going to go after you elsewhere. That's been the logic. And in that light, I am hoping that our Arab friends and brothers uh, will uh, come to the agreement with, with, with much of the rest of the international community that an opening between the US and Iran is to the advantage of GCC countries, because that's how Iran can uh, see a region that isn't opposed to it, but can work more closely with it. Thank you very much. system uh, that uh, really influence what actually the uh, whole theme of this uh, uh, meeting is about. Um, uh, first, uh, the issue of uh, U.S. and GCC, how do they look at, uh, for instance, Syria? Uh, we all heard uh, what uh, uh, the speakers have already mentioned that, but the idea is that uh, there's a lot of disappointment on uh, the GCC side uh, as to what
uh, hopefully that uh, that comes uh, uh, tomorrow before the day after. Um, uh, the uh, obviously the Obama administration is not necessarily really interested in how uh, you know the Assad regime. Uh, it's interested in how the Assad regime falls, but uh, it's not working to uh, at least to our knowledge uh, to make to, to collapse that regime. At the same time, it's trying to assist in the formation of uh, Syrian opposition forces that would fight the other enemy, the uh, the ISIS people. Um, this is something that the GCC and the United States do not necessarily see uh, eye to eye on, although both of them really uh, uh, work together on fighting ISIS in the, uh, uh, within the uh, international coalition um, uh, to fight uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Um, uh, as far as Lebanon is concerned, obviously both are concerned about what's happening there. There is institutional uh, stalemate. Uh, there is uh, both of them believe that uh, Lebanon should really get along good on with its uh, institutional rebuilding, uh, election of a president, uh, new parliamentary elections that would uh, really bring in a legitimate uh, parliament to the country. Uh, uh, obviously, both are concerned about Hezbollah interference in Syria and. Uh, uh, the Syrian crisis has uh, both on the, from a humanitarian angle and for, from a military angle has actually become a Syrian problem, uh, a Lebanese problem as well. Hezbollah's uh, interference in Syria obviously invites, uh, not that they need an invitation anyway, invites uh, ISIS and uh, the, uh, the Nusra Front uh, into Lebanese domestic uh, affairs and they are trying to influence the domestic affairs, but at the same time, it invites uh, Hezbollah into uh, into basically deciding the future of Lebanese foreign policy or the future of the country regarding uh, you know, uh, uh, whether this country really should be involved in the Syrian crisis or not. So this is something that both the U.S. and the GCC are, uh, are trying to ameliorate, trying to work on. I really don't don't think that there will be any. Uh, uh, anything coming out of that, uh, considering that uh, Hezbollah does its own thing, and this is where Iranian foreign policy comes in. If Iran wants to really make uh, things happen in Lebanon, maybe it should uh, talk to Hezbollah about allowing certain things to happen. Uh, as far as Iraq is concerned, obviously the, uh, the history is rather long. Uh, the uh, United States and the GCC for a while uh, thought that maybe we can cooperate on certain things in Iraq, but apparently uh, domestic politics within Iraq and the uh, the presence of uh, an the overwhelming influence uh, of, uh, of Iranian-supported uh, Shiite parties and militias uh, is really making cooperation on Iraq rather difficult. Uh, I think the only cooperation going on now uh, probably is uh, against ISIS, but there is uh, another little bit of cooperation regarding uh, what to do with, uh, with uh, uh, you know, helping the Iraqi state, so to speak, uh, stand up on its feet. Uh, the, uh, you know, the signal that was sent by the American Congress that uh, any assistance to the Iraqi government, military assistance, would have to really uh, take into account assistance to the Kurds and the Sunni tribes at the same time. So basically the United States and its different institutions are probably looking at the Iraqi situation in a uh, rather uh, divisive kind of way, which is making the Iraqi uh, uh, political system 
uh, still yet unstable. Uh, it will make it yet more unstable. And uh, this is something that, that really Iran may be able to influence because uh, after um, uh, Prime Minister Nouri Maliki uh, was basically deposed, uh, he was not allowed to uh, take a third, um, uh, to do a, a third term. Uh, it looked for a while that uh, Prime Minister Abadi is probably able to get everybody together, everybody together, uh, put everybody in the service of the Iraqi state. It looks like he has, he's, become, he's finding it rather difficult to really uh, accomplish. And uh, uh, the presence of uh, uh, many, many, many uh, uh, Iranian-supported political parties and, and uh, militias uh, in Iraq is not making that necessarily really, um, very easy for him. Um, uh, on to uh, basically, you know, the the theme of today is how, how what happens after a nuclear deal? If a nuclear deal happens, what is the future of these relations between uh, all the uh, all the parties concerned? What, 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 uh, to me, it, uh, obviously it is in each and every capital uh, involved in uh, all of this, but at the same time, it is very much in Tehran. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the issue of whether the United States becomes uh, Iran's uh, ally or, uh, or friend, uh, really, uh, I don't think it depends on Washington more than it, depend on, it depends on how Iranians themselves within Tehran, within Tehran's institutions, are thinking about the United States or the world at large. Um, uh, uh, Iranian, the Iranian political system is riven with factionalism. Uh, uh, there are a lot of factions that have, each of them have in their own way, the influ uh, its own influence on Iran foreign, uh, Iran's foreign policy. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Iranian uh, political scientists called it suspended equilibrium. There is equilibrium between different factions. And at the same time, you really don't know who really calls the shots. Is it really the uh, secular uh, uh, presidency or is it the religious uh, authorities? Uh, and that itself is, uh, 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 is essential to how Iran formulates its foreign policy and how it may or may not be open to allowing for, a, uh, first of all, following of relations, uh, and second of all, uh, augmenting warmer relations with the United States or with the GCC countries. Um, uh, the, uh, the issue of, uh, Iran has to decide, it really has to decide, uh, but uh, uh, first I have to, to say something. The GCC states are prototypical status quo states. These are states that are not looking for revolution, they're not looking for instability. They're not looking for uh, any uh, kind of uh, geostrategic change in the world, as far as they are concerned and as far as others are concerned. These are very status quo states. Iran has not decided whether it wants to be a status quo state or a revolutionary state. And this is necessarily very, very much at the, at the heart of what happens with Iranian foreign policy and its relations with the GCC and the United States. So. If the uh, 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 Iranian factions have to decide whether they really want to <coughs> keep pushing for revolution, and they really or they want to uh, deal with the political systems that are around them and the international community as as, as it is as a status quo uh, uh, situation, a status quo strategic situation. Thank you very much.
place and having the energy sector and various other things. But what we'll do now is go over uh, until 11 o'clock with questions and answers. Uh, and I'll open it up to the panel's uh, discussion. From the, based on the questions I've got, the first one is Dr. Sarah, uh, what is the impact of the Iranian nuclear agreement on the production of the energy minerals in the well, first, a nuclear deal is going to have immediate impact on Iran's production. Iran's crude oil production has been dropped since 2012, uh, sanctions on its oil export. Uh, they're going to increase their production. They are planning to increase their production to the pre-2012. Uh, pre on other regions, of course, uh, if, uh, it's, it's very much dependent. I mean, if you look at Iraq, it depends on its domestic uh, term one more than in Iran, but I believe that if Iran can produce its oil uh, comfortably and attract investment, the hydrocarbon law in Iraq might finally pass. Uh, on petrochemical, not necessary mineral, it's going to affect if there is going to be any export of natural gas to Saudi or UAE or Kuwait. Uh, these countries could have more export capacity because the, in the demand in uh, non-OECD, particularly in, in between the uh, GCC producers and in Iran, is increasing massively due to the population rate, uh, lack of efficiency, and also waste. So they are going to need most of the energy that they are exporting to use in, uh, in their own country. And having that natural gas is going to be a big help for maintaining their uh, crude oil export capacity. Um, next question is, if the Iraq war was a mistake, um, one was responsible for Iran's rise in regional power, why would any option other than diplomacy, such as military action, which would occur if Iran decides to build a bomb, work? Something must be done about Iran. What are the alternatives? We don't need trust. Saudi Arabia has been funding terrorism in the region, and we have no trouble flushing them or trusting them without verification. So, uh, you want to address that first, and then we'll just give the panel open it up for the panel to. All right. If the Iraq War was a mistake, uh, one that was responsible for Iran's rise in regional power, why would uh, any option other than diplomacy, such as military action? Would occur if Iran decides to build a bomb, work. Something must be done about Iran. What are the alternatives? We don't need trust. Saudi Arabia has been funding terrorism in the region. We have no trouble trusting them without verification. I, well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think uh, if we could just make uh, one or two comments on it. Uh, we, I think you were addressing the issue of uh, the rise of uh, Iranian uh, militants. Yes. Uh, the best thing that could happen for regional stability is for there to be an American official presence in Iran. That has been a geopolitical void for close to four decades now. It is a country of 80 million people with a little bit of history, as you know, uh, and it's not going anywhere. Uh, and even during the time of the Shah, uh, who was one of the United States' leading allies in the world at the time, 
It, it had an independent streak, uh, and it has even more of that today. So how do you uh, address this country's security concerns? Once you do that, and I believe an American presence in Tehran is going to contribute substantially to that because Iran's threat perception has been basically focused on the U.S., as uh, I mentioned before. Uh, some kind of normalization, not an alliance, but some kind of normalization where you feel that you're not going to be invaded is going to basically bring about more moderate Iranian behavior, uh, I think, naturally. And especially if you could get uh, Arab countries to invest in Iran, become a part of, have a presence, expand your presence. Instead of retreating, I'd say expand your presence. I'm not sure uh, I got the <clears throat> validity of the implications of, uh, if I inferred correctly, that uh, USA's relations with Saudi Arabia uh, went in an absence of uh, trust, more or less, that Saudi Arabia funds terrorism. Uh, if the implication was, well, Iran uh, funds uh, extremist militants, terrorists, whatever, uh, why can't the U.S. have uh, relations with Iran? If that was it, all the thrust, uh, I don't uh, find that uh, viable. Um, uh, people uh, want to be able to trust those with whom they enter into relations that bear on security, that bear on stability, that bear on the prospects and the potential for prosperity. Um, and so uh, here we have uh, Iran's undeniable involvement in at least four countries with the Iranian leaders saying, in essence, we control the capitals of four Arab countries. I mean, this is uh, extremist rhetoric and political recklessness uh, run amok or writ large. So there's no reciprocity here. Uh, there's no evidence <coughs> of any GCC country interfering in the domestic affairs of Iran. So this gross asymmetry of who's interfering and disturbing the other uh, is, I think, the more appropriate uh, focus uh, and not the question of have relations with somebody and whether you have trust with them or not. Uh, this interference uh, has to desist uh, stop uh, before there are any prospects for the relevant levels of trust and confidence. Well, uh, is this on? Okay. So part of the question was, is there, is there any alternative other than diplomacy? Oh, I, I certainly favor diplomacy. I think war would be, uh, you know, would have uh, terrible consequences for everybody in the region. So, yes, I'm in favor of diplomacy with Iran. Um, Unfortunately, to refer to another Middle East Policy Council conference, the former director of CIA said we cannot rely on American intelligence to determine whether or not Iran is cheating on an agreement like this. So there would have to be, you know, he just said we don't have the capability to know everything that's happening in the country. So there would have to be a tremendous amount of cooperation to make sure that the agreement was, was being uh, upheld. And... Uh, you would have to move beyond that into negotiating about other issues in the region. 
And I think, once again, you would have to have Iranian concessions there because, yeah, they are all over the Arab world. And not only did someone say we control four Arab capitals, but Qasem Soleimani said a couple of months ago, we have successfully exported the revolution you know, to you know, the Arab world, including to Bahrain. And he specifically mentioned Bahrain. So, uh, and actually that leads into another issue. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want diplomatic relations, but, it, but I don't know about a presence in Tehran right now. I, I think the factions have to decide uh, who's running things. In 1979, there was only one faction that took the American diplomats hostage. But they used it to prevail over the other factions. So um, let's get that straight first. And then on the other issue, you say Saudi Arabia is funding terrorism. Who, who do you mean? The Saudi Arabian government? Is that the allegation? The, the Saudi Arabian government's funding terrorism? You know, it's awfully hard to control every financial transaction taking place in a country. But they're making an effort to control the flow of money from private citizens to charities that might funnel the money out beyond where it can be easily tracked. Um, they're fighting terrorists. I mean, the, they are giving us better cooperation on our counterterrorism counter efforts against Al-Qaeda than anybody else. So uh, they understand that this is a threat to them. They wouldn't be funding them. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Anybody else? Yeah, I, um, the issue of you know whether the United States wants to be president in Tehran or not. I mean, that, uh, obviously, it's up to the United States to decide whether it wants to do that or not. But no matter how much presence, you know, the United States is in Beijing, and Beijing is building islands in the, the South Pacific so it can control the sea lane. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, why doesn't the United? Why can't the United States stop Beijing from doing that? Because it can. This is a, a Beijing decision. You know, it's the Chinese leadership that's doing this. It's important that the Iranian leadership know what is good, what's not good. Uh, we can't just simply blame the United States or blame the GCC only, or blame you know certain sectors in the Iranian political system. I mean, uh, everybody says you know. The president is really a moderate guy. Yeah, that's fine. Let the president be moderate. Other factors are not that Okay, thanks. Um, one specific question about uh, maybe uh, with regard to the UAE islands uh, issue, uh, whether or not this becomes part of the Iran agreement, whether that becomes a P5 plus 1 settles that as a side bar issue for uh, you're the authority on, on this. Uh, Whether it becomes part of the nuclear agreement? Yeah. I, uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. First of all, the United States wants to resolve this issue, this nuclear issue. Uh, and although it has conversations on the side about Yemen, for example, um, I don't think it's going to tie the islands issue to a nuclear agreement. And uh, neither would Iran. Uh, so, uh, 
issues that are uh, the gravest uh, threat to life and limb in the Middle East are, are um, the chaos in Iraq, and the chaos in Syria, and I think those issues will be higher on the agenda than the islands. And the other thing about it is that um, I did a book on it, and the <coughs> UAE has a great deal of documentary physical evidence of the possession and use of the islands for centuries. And Iran can't present anything even remotely comparable to that. So from a historical and legal point of view, the islands belong to the UAE. Iran's not going to give them up. It won't go to the International Court of Justice. Absolutely won't, because it knows we'll lose, because it can't present evidence. And I've never seen any evidence that they're willing to negotiate in good faith with the UAE on a bilateral basis. So uh, that issue is, uh, is not going to be resolved quickly and certainly won't be tied to the nuclear issue. Anybody have any? I'm just going to open this up to the panelists and maybe we can just go down the line and ask uh, your response to the question, which is fairly timely for today. Uh, the Obama administration is obviously embarrassed by King Salman's decision not to come to the GCC summit. Was this intentionally a snub, or was it something else? And if so, why? John? Um, I read that in the media. I, I don't take it uh, that way at all. Uh, I think that that would be a view of, of people who have not lived and worked in the region. Um, Saudi Arabia is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and its head of state is um, naturally deferred to uh, by most of the Arab heads of state. One can say in the realm of protocol, appropriately. And one does not necessarily read into that a power play or snub as such. It so happens that Qatar is the current head of the GCC. Uh, it's the head of the Supreme Council, its decision-making body, and the Ministerial Council, the policy recommendation body. Uh, and Qatar uh, should be, and appropriately will be, front and center of uh, a GCC contextual uh, face uh, to this summit. Uh, not a Saudi Arabia, not a Kuwaiti, not a Bahraini, not an Emirati, not an Omani. So I think um, King Salman's holding back was appropriate. That's point one. Point two uh, is that Mohammed bin Naif clearly has been on a day-to-day -day basis the individual working more the defense, security, and intelligence uh, issues than uh, King Salman. Um, uh, so these two aspects, uh, I think, uh, provide a bit more uh, credible uh, uh, perspective uh, for the absence of the king, and um, uh, second it as being appropriate. No, I, I completely agree with uh, John Duke. I think don't think this was a snub uh, in, in any case. Um, I think the appropriate and the important people are going to be here. Um, I think there is also an element here that, from uh, the Saudi perspective, they don't want this simply to be turned into a Saudi-U.S. issue. Uh, I think they definitely want this as being a GCC-U.S. summit. 
Saudi Arabia has been pushing very hard for uh, greater coordination among the GCC states. They have made tremendous effort to try to bridge differences with, uh, with Qatar, between Qatar and UAE, try to put forward common positions. Uh, we do remember King Abdullah's statement of trying to move the GCC from uh, cooperation to union. Uh, so I think it was very important, the message to be sent, that this is not going to be just the Saudi opinion or the Saudi uh, uh, wish list here coming to Washington, but that this is a common position, uh, that uh, the GCC states are pulling on this as one uh, group, and that the U.S. would have to deal with the GCC as a whole, and uh, I think this is the emphasis that they also wanted to provide. Well, I just heard my two colleagues, and you know, those are those are valid arguments. They're, you know, I, I, I um, what I said in my speech was that there may be a message here that what the assurances they think they're going to get are not sufficient. But, um, but you know, but I may be wrong um, about that. You know, the, the King of Saudi Arabia. I, I'm exhausted, and I'm not 79. I, you know, I just came back from the Middle East, and I haven't had surgery, I'm not on medication, and I'm not 79, but I'm exhausted. So if he feels that uh, this was not a trip he absolutely needed to make, uh, and that you know we could deal with somebody we know and trust, like Mohammed bin Nayib, and if we can get to know somebody we need to get to know, like Mohammed bin Salman, then, then maybe that's a better explanation than what I was saying about showing some disappointment with the assurances. No, I completely agree with Tom on, on just the who the king picked to send. It's very important, and that sends a message, is uh, who's really uh, going to be effective in the talks rather than the topic to be here. And also for me. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I concur. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, whatever goes on in the meeting will be uh, broadcast uh, simultaneously and we, uh, that the king will be listening to everything, I'm sure. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, it, it's interesting that the same uh, kind of uh, uh, you know, things that are coming out today about the snub and all this stuff, you know, basically trying to create the image that there is really a rift between the United States and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, specifically Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, there are disagreements, obviously. There are differences in opinions, obviously. But uh, at the same time, uh, the same kind of atmosphere that was said, uh, that is being said about the snub, was a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, uh, when, uh, when, when uh, Mohammed bin Laden became uh, crown prince. Uh, it was an America's man is crown prince. Well, if American man is crown prince, why can't he come here to attend the meeting? He is the important man, obviously. Thank you. Uh, on the other side, there's a question about, do you believe President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif want to bring Iran into the mainstream or simply lift sanctions? Did you uh, I would say they're inseparable from one another. Um, there are two um, main discourses to Iranian foreign policy. One is the revolutionary pan-Shia one, 
the other one is more of the run-of-the-mill Persian patriotism, if you like, which is more secular. And the Islamic Republic uh, has been uh, driven by both ideologies. The question is to what extent. Any kind of normalization, especially vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., is going to strengthen more moderate behavior because Shia ideology is all about, uh, as you know, uh, uh, the uh, stories of Imam Hussein's martyrdom, is all about fighting oppression, uh, fighting injustice. And, uh, and, and I'd say that uh, for uh, Rouhani and Zarif, uh, uh, having the sanctions lifted and any kind of opening to the U.S. would be viewed as very popular among people in general. And that's the irony of it all. We have a revolutionary government there whose population as we found out through polling that was done in the late 90s, early 2000s, is predominantly, overwhelmingly pro-American in the sense that if you ask people in Iran, and poll after poll has shown this, would you like this country's relations with the U.S. to be normalized? Overwhelmingly, people say yes. And the irony of it is that some of the other countries in that region, if you go to the people in the streets, say in Turkey or Egypt, and you ask, you don't get those same kinds of numbers. And so the question is, what's going on here? Uh, and so any opening would be, uh, you know, initiated by any politician would be very popular on the street, I think. I mean, I think from the, from the GCC side, of course, there's still a lot of questions about uh, decision-making structures in Iran. I mean, we hear positive things coming from the Foreign Minister Zarif. I think recently he wrote a piece in the, in the New York Times calling for collective security in the region. We've seen President Rouhani also state that, saying that uh, the relations with Saudi Arabia are of utmost importance and uh, they're critical. Uh, but, you know, we don't really know if, 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 if these people have the necessary power uh, inside the Iranian political system to, to uh, make those views uh, become more substantive. Uh, you know, we, we, you know and you have the feeling that uh, whatever they move forward on and, and, and in the statements that uh, the rug could be pulled from under them if, if the supreme leader decides uh, to say something different. And then we don't know exactly where does one stand uh, on this whole issue. And I think this is a concern a little bit. Uh, of course, on the other hand, I think we've seen a number of statements uh, recently from all uh, different Iranian leadership uh, that again underline this uh, sense that uh, uh, how sincere is Iran in trying to really move forward with relations with the region. Uh, I mean, you have even President Rouhani saying uh, you're accusing uh, Saudi leadership of, uh, I think it was mental imbalances, uh, and in terms of uh, you know their actions in uh, in, in Yemen, uh, you have statements from the Republican Guard saying that the Saud Al Saud families are teetering on the brink of collapse. Uh, you know, you even have uh, I think. Uh, Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, you know, when he commented on the, the leadership changes in, in, in Saudi Arabia, saying, well, now we're dealing with a bunch of inexperienced youngsters. I mean, these are all statements that, you know, they're, they're to a certain degree, they're quite offensive. Uh, I mean, we don't see 
the GCC leadership commenting on that uh, in that way about uh, Iranian leaders. Uh, so again, the doubts are there about what the intentions are. I'd go a little further than, than Christian and say that I, I, I don't believe that uh, Rouhani and Zarif have the file on Iraq or Syria or Yemen. I think they're pretty strictly limited to the nuclear file. So what they think about those things uh, is not really uh, what matters. I mean, I can, I can actually confirm that. It's, uh, if this was pointed out to us, uh, we at GRC, we've been holding uh, sort of track two dialogues uh, with the Iranians now for almost three years intermittently. Uh, and uh, this is an issue that has come up and it was confirmed and, and in those meetings that, uh, uh, you know, we cannot talk about Syria or Iraq. This is, this is, that's, it's simply not in our uh, profile. Uh, yeah, what Christian said, rightly, um, um, that actually are, there is also a supervisory body to the negotiations, uh, um, including uh, specifically conservative members of parliament of the Iraqi Shura Council, uh, Iranian Shura Council, that, uh, who basically forced the Ayatollah to appoint them to the supervisory committee to, uh, to oversee the negotiations. So uh, even in that, they don't have uh, full freedom. Um, in this momentary lull, I wanted to recognize that we had two ambassadors here, uh, one from the League of Arab States, Ambassador Mohammed Sharif al-Husseini, and we had the ambassador of the GCC uh, to the United Nations. Uh, there is no GCC office in the United States, unlike in Brussels, where there's been one for some time and the ambassador to the United Nations served there as well as in his current uh, post at, in New York. I welcome to you both. Please. Yeah. I wanted to add a point, uh, just to confirm the other speakers. Uh, the nuclear negotiations uh, and where it has been directed so far uh, will desecuritize the image of Iran, and this could help with the erosion of the sanctions. So even if the sanctions are not removed on Iran completely, but some of them are going to erode. And that, of course, will help with investment and Iran's economy. Um, on the GCC side, I very much agree that uh, about the different power centers in Iran and the statements that are not uh, coherent with each other. I mean, on one hand, we have Mr. Zarek saying that uh, relation with GCC is like a dance, that the other partner or Saudi is not is not willing to dance. But just less than a week, uh, there are statements that uh, calling all the Saud, uh, all the Saud, uh, Saud, or what they're going to collapse. So I think this uh, inconsistency between the policies and statements that are observed and coming out of Iran, of course, uh, including the issue of trust, uh, it doesn't help, of course. But um, on, uh, on the side of, okay, Iran and its GCC neighbors, neighbors are neighbors forever. They're living close to each other. And maybe that's like, I mean, having a good relation different than just we have to live with each other. And that's not going to happen unless there is a unified signal from Iranian side that there is a will for having better relations with GCC. So, 
question was just forwarded up. Uh, let's see, Iranians regime uh, fear of its people or from the U.S. Israel, which is great, which one is greater? Um, my apologies. Also, if I didn't read your questions or we're not taking them, so a lot of them uh, I'm having difficulty reading. <laughs> um, <laughs> so don't feel as if we're ignoring you. It's just because I can't interpret the, what's written uh, with the clarity and being able to read it and deliver at the same time. But this one was right on the money, man. So that's why I got. It. Uh, so the Iranian regime's fear of this is Iran's regime. Fearful of its people, or from the U.S. Uh, U.S. or Israeli relationship, and which one is greater? Basically? I'll take a stab at that really Please. easy question. <laughs> um, economic conditions have been bad in Iran. So, out of a population of 80 million, you have about 40 million people who are barely subsisting, and that's uh, a recipe for instability and rebellion. When you're hungry, when you see your kids hungry. Uh, malnourished, with little prospects for growth and you know economic progress, and the best way of changing that scenario is to introduce at least a modicum of economic opportunity, which would presumably come. So some folks are saying, will this embolden Iran with the lifting of sanctions? Will the unfreezing of the uh, hundred uh, billion and more? Uh, dollars that the country has had in reserves abroad that have been impounded. The question is, will that uh, make Iran more aggressive? I think not, because it will give it a taste of prosperity, uh, a modicum of it, and I think it will stabilize the situation. And uh, and, and and ultimately, there there has to be a discourse in Iran uh, moving forward that. Uh, gradually, not immediately, but gradually lessens the appeal of the death chants. I mean, this is the only country I know of where people chant death to this, death to death to this country, death to that country. That's just not really becoming an ancient civilization. Uh, that has to end at some point. Uh, you know, you cannot have normal relations with the world and then everybody say death to this country, death to this country. That's just not going to work. And if people by themselves ch uh, chant that, they need to be instructed not to. to. Just like they're instructed to chant it, I think they need to be instructed not to chant that. Because you can't, you know, one day have good relations, say, you know, we, we have a dialogue, at the same time we wish death upon you. That, that's just not done. Uh, uh, it's just not becoming, especially on a country that has such a rich civilization. And, and so the discourse that will emerge I think will have a lot to do with the kind of country Iran becomes. And the more integrated it is in its region, the less re reason it would have to foment instability uh, beyond its borders. Yeah, may I? Uh, yeah, please. Um, uh, like what Brian said, uh, in addition to that, there is uh, you know, there is a lot of speculation, and uh, some of it is actually quite accurate, that maybe the Iranian system, as it is now, does not want to open up to the world. Because opening up to the world is opening up to global to globalization, and whatever globalization forces you would, you would import into your society may really be the uh, security challenge that you will never be able to, uh, to deal with. 
and uh, maybe the um, uh, Iranian authorities do not want that to happen, specifically not only the religious establishment, but also the military establishment, and specifically the uh, IRGC, the uh, Republican Guard. I mean, uh, these people have a monopoly uh, on certain sectors of the economy, telecommunications and transportation, things of that nature. I mean, uh, they, uh, they, they employ at least like 200, 300,000 people uh, in, in different uh, economic enterprises. So uh, if you open up the Iranian system, whether political or economic, it's likely that they will have a competition that they really do not want. Um, I don't. I don't know the answer to that question about you know whether they fear most, but I know what they did in 2009 when there were demonstrations protesting the result of the presidential election, and uh, and I and I I assume they'd be willing to do it again if it was necessary to hold on to power. Well, the follow-up question for you. Uh, with regard to Syria, uh, there was a question from the audience. Uh, you said that the U.S. may be too late intervening in Syria. Um, what would you see happening in Syria that could have been prevented by uh, earlier U.S. intervention, and what should that intervention consist of? Again, I don't know if it's too late or it's not too late. Uh, I, I see we're, we're stepping up activity uh, and I see uh, our partners making some progress in the ground, and I see the regime um, suffering some setbacks and potential setbacks. But I, but I, but I don't know how it will come out. As to what, as to what we could have done, I'm sure there are, there are things we could have done three or four years ago that we that might have improved the situation there today. Um, you know, the, um, and I, I, and I point out that, that neither the United States nor the GCC countries turned against Assad very quickly. They gave him eight or nine or ten months to try to encourage him to deal in a moderate way with the opposition. And, and it wasn't until late in 2011 that even Saudis and others said, enough killing, you know, we, uh, you've got to go. But at that point, the United States could have done certain things. It, it could have... Uh, it could have provided the kinds of weapons that would have enabled the moderate opposition to do better on the battlefield. It uh, could have even uh, tried to set up a safe zone in which a moderate opposition could have, could have operated and tried to set up some kind of alternate government, and that would have required a no-fly zone. Okay, those are things could have done, and they were, and, and people went to carry and Obama and advocated those things. Um, uh, you know, when the chemical weapons were used, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily let's send 500,000 troops in there to pay him back for that. It could have been something like uh, dropping ordnance to crater military airfields so he couldn't get his planes up in the air and drop barrel bombs on people standing in bread lines. Um, there, are, there are a lot of things that we could have done along the way that might have that might have made the situation better. And certainly, although I, I, I sincerely admire our president for many, many, many things, um, I, I think he made some mistakes. And um, it, was, it was he who decided that we wouldn't 
engage in Syria in a more robust way because the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and Director of Central Intelligence came to him with very detailed military options that we could have, that we could have deployed in Syria after the chemical weapons incident, and he is the one who said no. So it's, it's, uh, it's his decision, and despite advice he got from, from the bureaucracy. Thank you. Um, I think that two or three other points uh, where the, on the trust aspect, uh, where the northern GCC countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Kuwait, will be more reluctant than the southern Gulf countries of Oman, the Emirates, and St. Qatar uh, to enter into a further uh, uh, trusting geopolitical, uh, a bilateral relationship with Iran on political issues. Uh, two summers ago, sleeper, Iranian sleeper cells were uncovered in Kuwait. Iranian sleeper cells were uncovered in Bahrain. It uh, was discovered under interrogation that the two cells uh, were coordinated uh, from Iran. Uh, the Saudi Arabian file on uh, residents of its eastern province uh, going uh, to uh, Syria or Nadaf or Karbala uh, and elsewhere to be trained or controlled or become agents or supporters or sympathizers or sleepers uh, for Iran. Those files have to be closed. Uh, if they remain open, uh, I see no likelihood of those three, uh, and they constitute half of the GCC, uh, being in favor of uh, a closer uh, political relationship with Iran. The economic and the commercial one, no, that's uh, in a separate category. Uh, and those in Dubai and Oman and elsewhere <coughs> are indeed uh, benefiting from that dynamic of the relationship. Uh, but that's quite different than the geopolitical and the political one. Well, we've got about five minutes left, so I think what I'll do is basically ask a big, long, three part question, which I've got three cards in front of me, but basically it revolves around what uh, what would the GCC states to uh, need to, to hear to consider this summit a success, uh, and what might its diplomatic consequences be of its failure? Uh, how did the Saudi government uh, affect the proceedings of the nuclear deal? How might this, uh, these discussions have an impact on that? And how is the proposed nuclear deal viewed from the Gulf? Um, and I think uh, what we'll do is just start from that side and work our way across. That would be okay with everybody. And then we'll uh, sort of do a quick wrap up if you want to say a few words at the end. So, that's an interesting <coughs> well, uh, <coughs> well, first of all, I you know the meeting is going to happen. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, despite whatever the naysayers are saying, uh, I, I think it's going to be positive at least because they're meeting. Um, at least it will be uh, an opportunity for airing differences, discussing some, uh, some, uh, some issues, 
and uh, there are a lot of uh, technical and uh, you know overall geostrategic issues that need to be discussed uh, or at least you know, touched on, so to speak. But uh, I, I honestly don't think that uh, the present administration is in any mood to extend you know, the overall uh, issue of uh, you know signing really defense treaties with the uh, with the DCC or. The, uh, dealing with them as if they are uh, NATO allies, uh, so to speak, unfortunately. But uh, uh, what you know, the, the administration will do what the administration can do. Uh, uh, remember that you know, uh, United States foreign policy in the Middle East is actually domestic policy. Uh, well, policy, United States domestic policy, uh, and uh, it reflects on a whole lot of issues, uh, especially the uh, the Israeli thing. Uh, they, however, will definitely, there probably will be uh, some uh, new extension of uh, uh, weapons sales, uh, the, some shipments, some agreement on some uh, really advanced uh, uh, intelligence uh, gathering, uh, and probably, uh, I, I don't think that 35 is in the cards yet. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's. Just way, way too early to talk about that. Uh, on the nuclear issue, I'd say the two sides of that coin are proliferation issues and ensuring that Iran doesn't build a nuclear weapon. The flip side of that coin is safety issues. What happens if there's an earthquake in Bushir? And, you know, what would happen if something that happened in Chernobyl the 80s or in Fukushima a few years ago happens in Iran and it's right on the Gulf and all these Arab countries are sitting there. That is not a proliferation issue. That's a safety issue. And that's what Iran and all of its sea neighbors have in common to initiate, especially because the Emirates are going nuclear out in, in a couple of years uh, with Korean help, South Korean help, to have some kind of a Gulf-wide nuclear safety initiative that is about the proper management of nuclear facilities because these countries are so close together, geographically speaking. Well, I'd rather to go back to the energy topic related to that. Uh, is, uh, if there is any deal, of course, it's going to be an effect on Iran's oil production. Currently, uh, South, particularly Saudi Arabia and Kuwait took Iran's market share the part that Iran lost, and they have uh, successfully signed long-term uh, sale agreement with their partners, so for at least next year, uh, you're going to have an oversupply because Saudi and Kuwait have a term agreement for supplying crude oil to their customers, Iran and crude oil is going to be in the market, so they could start, of course, negotiations, OPEC would be the first uh, ground to start the uh, energy uh, talks and then there is uh, the issue of investment. Iraq uh, has a lot of potentials for crude oil increased production. Uh, however, it doesn't have gas. So Iran has huge resources of gas. So Qatar does, but Qatar again has uh, contracts and all of its natural gas for uh, some good amount of years is already committed. So Iran's gas would be a solution to many of uh, energy uh, problems and challenges of its neighboring countries, but again, for any, at least, gas deal, which is totally different with oil, sell, it's a very long-term commitment. There will be a need for solving those mistrust and those uh, issues that they have, at least to a certain degree, that, that both sides would be able to start it. Well, um, 
Well, I think there's a clear realization uh, among the GCC states that uh, you know we're not going to solve all the problems uh, at the summit meeting. Uh, it definitely is a good opportunity uh, for uh, the GCC leaderships. They're going to have Obama's attention all, all day. They're going to be able to talk to him directly. And they're going to want to hear from him personally also uh, the specifics on the nuclear deal. And I think there are two aspects that are going to be important. One is, what is the United States going to be ready to do in case Iran doesn't stick to the deal in the end? If they're caught cheating down the road, what happens? What measures is the United States ready then to impose uh, in that in that case? And second, what happens after 10 years, 10 or 15 years, whatever the final agreement will be? Uh, what's then going to happen to the nuclear issue? Because there is that concern that you get to 10 years and then suddenly uh, Iran is just free to do whatever it wants. I think they want to have a clear uh, signal that even after 10 years, a nuclear uh, program would not be allowed. Uh, and I think that's going to be important. Uh, and of course, they're going to want to hear very clearly what the U.S. strategy is in terms of countering Iranian asymmetric activities uh, in the region. Um, but again, this is part of a process. They're going to be here to listen. Uh, but I think, you know, over time, uh, still there is that issue of uh, not being sure that, uh, you know, the rhetoric is going to match the action in the end of the day. So uh, the jury is going to be out on, A, uh, is, do they have the feeling that uh, the president is really listening to their concerns? And B, uh, is he going down the road actually implement and, and then do something about this concern? Uh, and there we have to see, you know, the judgment is still be out. I agree with Christian about the nuclear issue, so I won't repeat what he said and uh, picking up on what he said about the other issue. Um, I think what they'd like to hear, and I, I don't think, I'm not sure they will hear it, but um, what they'd like to hear is how do we define the word attack? Uh, if we are going to assure them that we are going to be there for them when they are attacked, does that mean uh, only when there is a conventional assault against them, which I don't expect to occur? Or does it mean that, uh, or do we understand that Iran would have the capability to foment uh, an action inside their country that could destabilize the regime? And do we define the word attack to include that? And would we be there for them in, a, in, a, in a, such an occasion. And by the way, they're a little concerned about the interview that Obama gave Tom Friedman when he spoke about the greatest threat to them being from their own populations rather than from Iran. Because uh, uh, that signals to them that, that he would not be there for them if, for example, an Iranian militia in Iraq got in, you know, into business with some people inside Kuwait and did something inside Kuwait that, that, that subverted the regime. I'll turn it over. Uh, a, a few uh, final uh, comments.
here, uh, pertaining to the summit. Summits are uh, always important, and uh, this one in particular uh, because of its participants. This is not North Korea. This is not the eastern end of the Mediterranean. This is a place that has more than half of all the world's known proven hydrocarbon energy resources that are the, the trigger, the engine that drives uh, the global economy. So any uh, meeting of representatives of uh, six countries that line the entire western side of this uh, waterway is bound to have strategic significance. Um, but the media, of course, has an interest in uh, fanning uh, tensions or creating tensions, or if it bleeds, it leads, etc. So if one focuses only on the media, what one will lose sight of is the following, uh, that the U.S. relationship with these six countries is multifaceted, uh, it's strong, and it's uh, long in terms of legs. Uh, this is the 70th year of the historic meeting between uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and King Abdulaziz, February 14, 1945. Uh, but from that meeting, people have inferred and derived very misleading lessons. There is a consensus in this sitting of Congress and the executive branch that, all right, there was a bargain there, a grand bargain. Uh, that uh, America would provide security defense for Saudi Arabia in exchange for unlimited massive amounts of this hydrocarbon fuels. And no, no doubt that America's unrivaled position in terms of its material well-being uh, globally through uh, Saudi Aramco uh, has had a direct linkage to low-cost energy compared to all other countries, America's uh, GDP uh, is is abundant evidence for that. However, the misleading part of that is that the two pieces of it are inanimate. A thing, namely energy, uh, in exchange for another thing, military might. Uh, that's not the glue or the cement of the lubricant of the relationship. It's something quite different and it's more profound and multifaceted and pervasive than that. One has to go back to the 1920s uh, when doctors from Bahrain uh, sailed over to Saudi Arabia and stayed a week and treated people with all kinds of diseases and ailments and illnesses and they asked for nothing in return. And they did this over and over and over, year round and into the 30s, uh, to the point where King Abdulaziz asked, who are these Americans? Uh, because that behavior was so different from that of the British and that of the French, and who had imperial images in America, uh, did not. And so from that perception of the people to people, dynamic of the relationship came King Abdulaziz's favorable positive bias uh, in favor of an American petroleum company uh, being granted a long-term concession for petroleum exploration. And that's the story. That's the glue. That's the adhesive of the relationship. And you have something like 200,000 American university graduates in Saudi Arabia. And since 1975, there have been more American-trained PhDs 
and Saudi Arabia's cabinet and PhDs of any kind, and the American cabinet, the Supreme Court, the Senate, and the House of Representatives combined. And even now you have more than 100,000 Saudi Arabian students in the United States, and they are Shia among them. And a large percentage of them are women as well. These things do not come through in the media or the press conferences or the communiques at the end of summits. Uh, but the, uh, the relationship, not just with Saudi Arabia, but with Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the Emirates, and Oman, is this multifaceted strategic on issues of war and peace, economic in terms of what drives the global economies, uh, political in terms of the issues of the day and votes in the United Nations Security Councils, and active or inactive uh, or serious or marginally serious peace processes. There the defense cooperation dynamics. The United States has four defense cooperation agreements with the GCC countries, uh, and these came after the Kuwait crisis of 1991. An even older access to facilities agreement since uh, Oman entered into it after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But people say, well, we don't have one with Saudi Arabia. And that's a major omission. Uh, here's where one has to be careful of not confusing form with function. No, there is no defense cooperation agreement with Saudi Arabia. Uh, but the defense relationship with Saudi Arabia, the training, the munitions, the arms transfers, the commonness of strategic doctrine, of interoperability, of education, of political, military, dynamics and relations, dwarfs that of all of the other five countries that do have defense cooperation uh, agreements there. Uh, so the relationship is stronger than the atmospheric surrounding this summit would imply or suggest. And those who work the issues on a day-to-day -day basis uh, know this. There's no massive grounds uh, for grave concern uh, that the relationship is teetering and tottering and that uh, one or the other side is weak and wavering and pondering withdrawal. No, this relationship is the envy of every other country in the world. And uh, I welcome debating anybody who disagrees with that. Uh, we thank you for coming uh, to help add these issues and to have a divergence of viewpoint and analysis and assessment and an estimation of where this relationship is, where it's been, and where it's headed. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you.